This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Monday, 20th of November. With me today, I have Sven Lawrence. Sven has had an illustrious career in financial markets, currently CEO of Sana Asset Management and well-known for his undervalued share website and newsletter. Sven has an exciting and transformational project, which we will talk about shortly. Sven, good afternoon. Hi, Nick. Great to be here. Lovely to see you in London. How long are you over for? Just today, literally, coming over from the lovely island of Sark. Well, I'm, uh, I'm very privileged to find time to, to spend with us Let's start with a bit of your background. What first interested you in financial markets and business? So my dad used to subscribe to a business magazine that had one page on the stock market every month with one stock that they featured. I read about the first stock that really interested me when I was 15, and I convinced my parents to allow me to actually open a brokerage account and put some of my savings into that stock. And it really went from there. Can you remember what the stock was? Yes, it was the electricity company of the city of Hamburg in Germany. Uh And I made about 30% relatively quickly, and I was hooked ever since. It seemed like free money. It was all so easy. And then then what happened next? So I started reading a lot more about the stock market at the time using books, and there were a couple of magazines in Germany covering the financial markets. And I actually started to go to shareholders' meetings in the Frankfurt area, which is where I grew up, which was easy to get to. And I started to ask questions. I'm very curious. And these were great opportunities to engage with CEOs and directors. And at some of these meetings, a journalist, a very well-established journalist from one of the oldest and most widely read investment newsletters, he noticed me. And his industry was suffering under a lack of young people. So he asked me, you know, would you consider becoming a freelancer for us and writing about what you see at these shareholders meetings? And I was 16 at the time. He paid me a small amount of money, but to me that seemed like an absolute fortune at the time. And um, that started my career writing about stock markets and all related aspects of it. And then did you go on to university or did you decide that stock markets for you and that's where you stayed? So by the time I was 19, I already had a very substantial income as a freelance journalist because one of the few talents that I have is I write a lot of text relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, that allowed me to work for multiple outlets. And I was making more money basically than my dad did, who was sort of not earning too badly either, upper middle class. And so by the time I was 19 and at university, I was also slightly cocky as in like, you know, I'm making enough money, you know, do I really need all this? And I did study briefly economics at a university in Bavaria, but I didn't finish because one of the investment newsletters that I was a freelancer for, the editor-in-chief had a heart attack and literally died at her desk and the next weekly issue had to come out. So at age 
21 or 22, I suddenly found myself becoming, by default, the editor-in-chief of a fairly um, old and well-respected investment publication in Germany. And that's where my career just, you know, had its own momentum and other things fell by the wayside. And I guess that's allowed you a lot of flexibility. Absolutely. So until the age of 36, I never had conventional employment. And I think I've done this work from home thing, I'd say, for my entire life. So long before this became popular. And I've always pursued many different interests in life, some of them outside of the financial area mm -hmm. as well. I think it's important to have a bit of a broader perspective on things. And yeah, no, flexibility has been um, one of the themes in my life, luckily. And I guess flexibility and therefore geographical location of, of where you do these flexible things is also giving you a great advantage to travel. Absolutely. And um, one of the things I've always been known for is that I travel a lot and I've developed this reputation, rightly or wrongly, that I write about interesting investments in exciting or in, 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 in exotic locations, um, which is partially true. I do that also to some extent because it pleases the audience and it gets a lot of interest. Um, but yes, traveling has been a way of life. I've dealt with real estate around the world as well. And um, yeah, currently I live in the Channel Islands on a small island. So you could say that I'm still using this flexibility to live the sort of lifestyle that I, I enjoy. And then am I right in thinking you also lived in the Galapagos for a while? I did indeed. And that was one of the most transformative experiences in my life and also something that was c totally outside of the financial industry. So I, I once, the short story is I bought a piece of land in the Galapagos Islands over the telephone without having been, knowing full well it could be a fraud. I didn't think it was a fraud, but I, you know, I was aware of the risks. Then I traveled there, um, checked on it. I did actually own that piece of land, and I ended up co-funding and co-founding a school for the hospitality industry to, to train local kids. And that was a philanthropic project. And through that, I eventually ended up getting asked to join the board of trustees of another large local charity, the Charles Darwin Foundation, which mm -hmm. operates a research facility with 150 employees on the island. And they were pretty much bankrupt because they had always been managed by scientists. Yeah. And um, uh, after joining the board of trustees, a series of events led to the president getting ousted and the CEO getting ousted and me ending up as the interim CEO. Uh, taking over an organization that hadn't paid salaries in three months. They had millions of debt. They didn't even know really what they were doing out there. Asked for a list of projects and they didn't have one. And after a couple of months, I said, this is so much fun. If you give me a contract, I'll stay here for a while. And I ended up staying four years and fixing this organization. Wow. So I guess we'll come on to it shortly. But, but small islands, you have a, you have a favorable place for you to live. Small islands, big islands, give me any island any time of the day. And then do you want to talk a little bit about sort of undervalued shares, your website and, and your blog? Yeah, so I love writing. It's a process that I find very conducive to putting your thoughts into order. And then you can also put anything that you've written in front of other people to ask them for their view and for the input, which I think in, when it comes to investments is also extremely valuable and useful. It's also uh, something that disciplines you. And I basically wrote a blog, I think, before the word blog really came into existence. I am old enough to have witnessed the early days of the Internet. Yeah, me as well. And <laughs> um, over time, I started publishing on the Internet, and that turned into a blog called undervaluedshares.com. Sort of, it does what it says on the label, which I wrote until 2010. Then I did stop for about eight years. 
First, because I was in the Galapagos Islands for four years, and that was genuinely the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life, uh, involving, you know, sleeping in the office for two hours and then continuing. And in 2018, I revived the website with a slightly revised format, being older and wiser, and I've been writing it ever since. It's a free weekly column, uh, and occasionally I publish research reports that are for registered readers only, and, um, well, I've got readers in over 100 countries, so it seems to be doing something that's useful for people. And that's undervaluedshares.com? Undervaluedshares.com, with or without hyphen. Excellent. And I guess... It's now time we can talk about this exciting and transformational project that you've been involved in for, for the last three years. Would you like to start from the very beginning? Yes, sir. I think it's worth explaining where it's going to be located. It's going to be located on the island of Sark, which is one of the Channel Islands. It's known for being car-free. It used to be the last feudal place in Europe, but it's become a democracy in 2008. And Sark is the very odd case of an island that only has 600 residents, but is self-governing. It is almost like a country for all intents and purposes. It has the same degree of independence as Guernsey, as Jersey, uh, or as the Isle of Man. It's a crown dependency. And that is quite an extraordinary accident of history when you think about it. Something, uh, a jurisdiction that only has 600 people, but it's mm -hmm. got a parliament. It's writing its own laws. It's setting its own taxes. And... Sark has been in the media a lot for probably the last 15 years because of the Barclay family's involvement, yep. uh, which I think one can briefly summarize in, in two parts. Part one is they purchased an island that is next to Sark, belongs jurisdictionally to Sark. It's the island of Breku. They built a castle as a family home and then eventually ended up buying a major chunk of the rest of Sark, land, hotels, commercial properties, residential and famously falling out with the local population, and it all ended up in a long-running and bitter dispute that I think is now firmly in the past. Um, Sir David Barclay has in the meantime passed on, mm -hmm. and it is no secret, it's in the public domain, that the assets uh, have passed on to his son, to Alistair Barclay. And I have been working for two and a half years with the senior of Sark, who's our hereditary head of state, the feudal yep. lord of the island, uh, to prepare making an offer to purchase these properties and to come up with a long-term development plan for the island that is sympathetic to what Sark is, but also realistic about what it needs. And among other things, it probably needs more people. And we are basically preparing a combined real estate investment case and island sustainability case, for lack of a better word, um, which still hinges on making an offer and the offer being accepted and executed, yep. but we are getting very close to that, I think. So how many properties or what percentage of the island would you look to, to purchase? So Sark is an island of five and a half square kilometers. It sounds very small, but when you're there, it's actually much bigger than people think it is. That's what absolutely everyone says yep. once I've walked them across the island for two and a half hours and I say you've just seen a fraction of it there's a lot of topography as well so uh -huh. like um, uh, and uh, of those five and a half square kilometers this particular portfolio that we're looking to purchase as as the number one investment that we want to make on Sark is about 20% of the land mass and a slightly higher percentage of the built real estate so it's about 80 residential houses five of the seven hotels, although one of them is actually burnt down, so you're just basically buying a site and a yep. permit, uh, 19 commercial properties and, and and land, some of which is for building, others just forever for agriculture. And how much infrastructure is in the island? 
So Sark has a surprisingly well-functioning infrastructure. Everyone always asks me about how do you get stuff there? And yep. that's actually the easiest part, whether it's an Amazon parcel or a UPS delivery or, you know, you want to send construction material there or your suitcases. The Because the infrastructure and the logistics have been going for decades and also involve lots of tourists in summer, large festivals when suddenly the population goes from 600 to 2,000 or 2,500 on a single day. Um, that's not too difficult. I'd say something that Sark does suffer under is the harbour is very prone to not being operable during bad weather. Mm -hmm. It doesn't yep. take much to have the ferry cancelled. That's a major issue for the tourist industry. Uh, and then, of course, Sark famously, first of all, doesn't have cars, but also doesn't have an airport. So uh, it, you have to fly to Guernsey and then you take a boat over. There's a ferry company that operates either some, several times a day in summer or in winter once or twice a day on some days, not at all. How long does the ferry take? The new boat takes about 35 minutes. Okay. If the weather is bad, you take the old boat, which is a bit more for yep. the roughened um, seas of the Channel Islands. That takes about 50 minutes. Okay, so, so not far at all, right? So it's, it's a lot more connected than you imagine. And um, internet? Internet is faster than in London. So one of the things that Sark really benefits from, and that I think puts the entire case for living in Sark or visiting or, or investing there into a very different light, it's just next to Guernsey. Guernsey is obviously a major financial center, an, an offshore center renowned for its competence, for example, in corporate bond issue. And... Guernsey having uh, a very high degree of affluence means that whatever you're looking for, whether it's a very nice waitrose or high-end restaurants, etc., etc., you can find it on Guernsey. If you live on Sark, there's things like Shopping Wednesday or Shopping mm -hmm. Saturday where the ferry company offers you a cheaper day return yeah. ticket. And without Guernsey, I wouldn't want to live in Sark. But with Guernsey, it's great. And that also extends to the internet. We've got super fast internet. We've got very fast 4G. Unless you live on a very unfortunate corner of Sark, it's it's a great place to work remotely. And then I guess uh, an attraction may well be the, the tax status. Of course. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm there as well. But I don't think anyone really moves somewhere just for the taxes. It's always a package. And I once ran a campaign to bring more people to Sark um, three years ago. And when I asked them, you know, why did you actually decide to move here? It was always a list of five or six things mm -hmm. where taxes were number four or five. Yeah. Number one was always community, island, nature, safety. And then somewhere along the way came taxes. And I actually I'm a big proponent of saying the taxes is not even really that big a selling point. It's the freedom from personal admin that I find so yes. pleasant. Yes. So you don't have to declare income. You don't have to de declare assets. If you want, you can just use your your paper bin as your you know your admin assistant or your accountant. There is no need to keep any records for yourself or even for your business mm -hmm. on Sark, and you know that's quite an advantage. When it comes to taxes, um, I pay about five thousand pounds a year. Uh, I'm very happy to pay for that. The Sark government provides um, infrastructure. It has a judge. It has a jail. It provides a school, a doctor. So there's things that we want, and for that, um, my taxes, I think, are going to a good cause. And then there's a property tax to change in ownership, is that right? Correct. So the property tax from January the 1st will be 7.5%, which I think places Sark somewhere in the sort of like m in the middle of the spectrum when it comes to property transfer taxes internationally. Uh, and then what's the plan? What's the, what's the great hope? 
So there's really two things. When you visit Sark right now, you will see that a significant part of the island is derelict and deserted. And there is a very conventional, almost boring case for fixing up existing real estate and putting it back to use and putting it back to a better use. Uh, I mentioned that one of the hotels is burned down. Um, another two hotels are closed because they're der derelict. Two other hotels in this portfolio are open but very much underutilized and undermarketed. Uh, even some of the residential real estate currently in that portfolio is not used because it needs refurbishment. Uh, and we currently have almost a waiting list of people who want to move to Sark. Anyone with a British or Irish passport, that's 73 million people, mm -hmm. can move to Sark. No questions asked. There's n not even a, a stamp in your passport because there's no border, provided you can find somewhere to live. And in this day and age of work from home, <coughs> this is very much a product that's in demand. Yes. And uh, time difference? Uh, zero. It's, yeah. uh, it's yeah. the same. And um, phase two of the investment case is really what we call getting Sark to critical mass. Right now, the island has 600 people, and with 600 people, you cannot run a country, a jurisdiction, uh, or, or an island for that matter. Um, we don't know what the right number is for Sark. We want to have a conversation about that. We've been um, engaging the community as well. We want to hear what does the community think, and what do they want, and what do they don't want. Uh, a few um, very, uh, I think, useful indications are Sark has no bakery, for example. Um, uh, for many, many years until very recently, Sark had empty places, empty seats in Parliament at any given time because not enough people wanted to stand for Parliament. Urban planners will tell you that to run a community in a sustainable fashion where it's attractive to live there, you need 1,100 to 1,300 households. A household in the UK is 2.4 people. Uh, we're not saying that this is the right figure for Sark, but it's certainly not 600. And then you are basically looking at an investment case that is a combination of increasing the population, increasing quite probably um, uh, the, the relocation of businesses to Sark. Mm -hmm. They can also um, offer better job opportunities. The island, like many other islands, has a demographic problem. Aging population, young people leave, there are no job prospects. Uh, the tourist season is very short. Unless you want to work in a hotel at the bar, what do you do in winter in Sark? And we think all of these problems are solvable. We've engaged some great experts to, to make plans for that. And they would all come together to eventually make Sark one of the greatest places on earth to live in with, I think, property values to match. Um, equally, there needs to be affordable property. We're very mindful of that. Um, so there is a, a very, I'd say, coherent investment case for something that could really become an outstanding investment success, but also a model for the rest of the world to learn from how to do things properly. And then how do you win over the locals? So we brought over an organization that is specialized in engaging communities when it comes to urban development, placemaking, building community. And the very first step we did was to ask them what do they think and what do they think is worth preserving about Sark and what needs improving. And frankly, there weren't really any surprises there. Mm -hmm. What's on the wish list is affordable housing, better services, healthcare, um, uh, improving the infrastructure. The harbor is in not very great shape, one has to say. Equally, there are factors that I think are just beyond doubt never going to change. And I'm, I'm being a resident of the island, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm in that camp as well. Would I ever want to see cars on Sark? Absolutely no way. Yep. I think this island being car free is one of the greatest features that it has. Uh, its nature is amazing. So, you know, don't build anything where you've got precious nature or amazing views. 
but in a way this is all common sense and I think I think very highly of the community in Sark. It is actually a lovely community uh, with a lot of people who've got the heart in the right space. And I think having conversations about this will eventually lead to the right outcome that will be a win for everyone. I guess it's, it's small steps are winning hearts and minds, isn't it? If they can see the regeneration of the island through your acquisition of the more derelict properties, then actually that has the whole sort of Malcolm Gladwell idea of a better community and people more willing to engage and then you win, you're able to win that support through action. Uh, you've summarized it perfectly and I've done this in the Galapagos Islands already which is a much more difficult work environment. So people approach me often and say oh why do you try to do something in Sark? It's such a difficult place to work in. I say you have no idea. This is like such an easy place to work in. In Galapagos, you are, first of all, truly remote. It's a thousand kilometers off the coast of Ecuador yeah. with nothing else going on around it. It's a third world country. It's hyper corrupt. Um, you have 80, 80 government institutions trying to govern 30,000 residents. It's completely over governed. That's before you've even thrown the NGOs into the mix. In Sark, you know, there's 600 people. We know who to speak to. There's one government. Then you need to speak to Guernsey, and you need to speak to the Crown and the UK government. So there are a bunch of stakeholders. But it's, relatively speaking, all entirely manageable, and that's why I'm, why I'm throwing myself into this. And, and am I right in thinking that even King Charles has been involved? He's visited Sark when he's Prince Charles? And so, yes, let's take a step back. The Crown in general yeah. is, is very much involved because... Sark is self-governing because in 1565, the English crown granted the right to Sark to govern itself uh, for perpetuity, provided it, it shows good governance. Yep. And there is a strong link to the crown in the sense that all the laws that come out of Sark need to go to the Privy Council, the advisory council of the sovereign, and need to be approved, which is mostly a matter of... Um, uh, it's, an, it's a well-established process, and obviously there's a lot of communica communication going on. Um, the royal family has a what I would call a, a strong presence in the Sark in the sense that hardly a year goes by without one member of the royal family showing up. Uh, then Prince Charles was last there in 2012, and I had a big bit of a link to all of this in the sense that I was instrumental in bringing... Prince Charles's um, uh, foundation for urban planning and sustainability to the Galapagos Islands mm -hmm. in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, I actually, I think, personally wrote the first check to have some of his team members fly over there, which then became a, a multi-million dollar project in the Galapagos Islands with major philanthropic backing from the United States. And um, I rang them up. Uh, two years ago, and I said, well, I'm on this other island now, <laughs> Sark, would you like to come and have a look? Uh, his foundation, which used to be called the Prince's Foundation until two weeks ago, and is just now changing yep. the name into the King's Foundation, is specialized in urban planning, placemaking, building community, sustainability, and all these issues. And we invited them over, and we very much hope that they will continue to work there with the local government. We, we just wanted to provide an impetus uh, that's currently under discussion. I can, however, say also that um, I believe the king will have to visit Sark in the not-too-distant future to take an oath from the seigneur, from the feudal lord. Mm -hmm. There is a tradition that the seigneur, or the dame if it's a female um, uh, lord, uh, has to make an oath to the sovereign 
on Sark, and I have reason to believe that this may be on the cards for next year. Oh, how exciting! How exciting! And so, what is the what is the plan now? So you potentially bid for the estate, and hopefully, um, the the bid goes through. How are you planning on on funding that, and what support do you have that from 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 external investors? So what we're doing now will come in two phases. We've just done two and a half years of preparatory work to prepare for the day if or when we actually get the key to this portfolio and potentially other properties that we'd be looking at acquiring as well. Uh, and we are now crossing the T's and dotting the I's for making an offer, a cash offer. This will be backed by high net worths mm -hmm. and specialized funds. Uh, and, and this can really only be done by putting together a small group of entrepreneurial funders yeah. who have the wherewithal to do these things and also who understand how such transactions work. You, you couldn't involve the broader public in this. Uh, we have an operational plan for literally day one uh, and then day 30, 60, 180, we, we, we know what we have to do with this estate to really bring it back to life and to get positive momentum injected. And uh, pretty soon into this entire process, we want to start um, working with professional advisors to take this portfolio public. Yep. It will be more than just a real estate portfolio. It will be an operating company. And we want to take it public, ideally, on the London market, yes. possibly yep. with a local listing on the stock exchange in Guernsey called the International Stock Exchange. And we want to make it as accessible as possible. Our idea is to democratize investing into SARC, to be very transparent, kind of the opposite of what happened in the past also to just simply break with the past and give Sark a fresh start, and also to mobilize investment. There'll be a, a second round funding then. And all of this should unfold over the course of the year 2024, 25, if we're successful with what we're planning. And then I guess a lot of that fund, I mean, to grow industry or to grow commerce in Sark, tourism being one of its greatest Exports, I guess? Or? Tourism is the obvious one and in a way the low-hanging fruit. And I'm a big believer in keeping things simple and working with what you've got. There are hotels, there are people keen to visit. Uh, there is demand for um, vacations maybe a bit closer to home. So let's work with that. But Sark really needs to look beyond that as well. And we have ideas, but we haven't you know, run a proper public consultation process on this yet. Uh, there are all sorts of, I mean, just looking at the last three years, we've had many new residents move to Sark who are running businesses remotely. Mm -hmm. yep. It's often in the finance industry or involving something professional in, in healthcare, architecture, et cetera, et cetera. And Sark could be an ideal place for that. And it has already created a few new jobs, but not enough yet. I think career opportunities for young residents of the island is really the key term here because before the pandemic, Sark had an average age of above 60 compared to 40 in the UK. Yeah. That's catastrophic. And that's just, you know, heading towards the abyss. And we're now at an average age of 51. So it's <laughs> moved in the right direction. But we need more of that. And Sark has a great school, but it needs more children and getting families there and making people stay for the long term as well. Buying property, investing into property. Yeah. All of these things are needed. So, I mean... We have no shortage of challenges in a way. The good thing is that we're starting from such a low base that it can really only be, only be up from where we are. So despite the very fast internet, it's an incredible island to disconnect. I assume no cars, obviously. I also assume uh, 
no real street lights or the light pollution, very limited light pollution. So it must be a sort of a wonderful place to live. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you two examples. So the first one is a couple from London, uh, late 30s, who moved to Sark to run their business over there, their internet business. They kept a team of staff members in London, but as a couple, they ran their business from the island and they became more successful than ever before because they said they just have time to focus on yep. actually building the business. And they also got very fit. You know, yep. <laughs> It's great to go running in Sark or swimming or whatever you fancy. And that is certainly one way of doing it. And then when it comes to um, disconnecting and darkness, uh, just last week I had someone on the island from Hollywood. And um, on the first evening when we walked home, <laughs> they said, I've never been anywhere that dark in my entire imagine. life. Because there are no street lights and there's no light pollution. It's, it's incredible. And it's one of those things that everyone who's on Sark absolutely loves and adores. And we would never want to change that. Now, it is going to be a very interesting balance, isn't it, between regeneration and expansion whilst also keeping that core DNA that attracts the people in the first place. Absolutely, and that's why we only really want to work with the best advisors in the world, and one of them we've already identified, which is the foundation that we spoke about. Um, and we are going to go all out when it comes to engaging the community and making sure that what we have has community buy-in. There'll always be a few people who are unhappy, but that's the nature of, of, of doing something like that. Um, luckily, on Sark, there's so much missing and yeah. so much opportunity that generating a few quick wins and showing what can be done and um, showing what positive impact that has is not going to be that difficult. I mean, it's an incredible project, really. I mean, it, it could be, it will be so very successful, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm actually quite nervous about it because I'm going to tie my entire reputation to it, so... <laughs> well, it, well, well, it, well, exactly, exactly. Hopefully it, it comes through in the way that the, the vendor the vendor is able to deliver it at a successful price. I think the chance of these things going ahead now is about 80%. Um, so we've invested significantly into making it happen. Uh, going public is inherently a risk, yep. um, but we are, that's something we simply have to do now because we have to speak to a number of people where we just have to openly disclose what it is that we're going to do. So it's better to shape the message um, ourselves than to have things leak out. Yeah, and I guess also it's very important, even though the relationship with the vendor or the owner has broken down with the locals, they need to be seen to hopefully maybe delivering it to some a, a party that can actually succeed or do better than they currently have done. Absolutely, and even more than that. So we want to be good neighbours with the island of Breku. Um, I, I personally, I actually have a lot of respect for what the Barclay family attempted on Sark. It didn't work out, um, although when you speak to some of their detractors, you will hear that some of them also realise not everything on their side was, was that great either. Yeah. Uh, be that as it may, it's all in the past. Let's move on. Fresh start. Um, we, we are not interested in the island of Breku. Uh, we're not interested in the castle. We would love to be great neighbours and yep. become successful together. And I think that's where I really see the future. How can listeners follow your progress? So, well, two ways, really. Um, I do occasionally publish an article on undervaluedshares.com, yep. as I am doing on the day when our podcast comes out. Yep. So there's more information there. And I would expect that actually will be present in the media a fair bit in the next couple of weeks or months. Um, and the website of my company, Sanya Asset Management, in 
in Guernsey may also contain information, although it's the SARC project is slightly separate from that company. Yes, it's destined yeah. to be spun off. Um, just keep your eyes open. I think you'll find it. Sven, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. So if I can, I'll take one at a time, please. Your greatest inspiration or mentor? So something that I really live by is a piece of wisdom that a Dutch billionaire shared with me while I was out on a boat in the Galapagos Islands, just four people, and we chatted for hours, and I asked him, you know, you're, you're a, a genuine self-made billionaire. What do you think is the single most important thing you have learned in life? And he said, keep it simple, because if it's not simple, it's not going to work. And yep. I've really taken that to heart. I think it's very important to keep that in mind. I mean, Warren Buffett uses the same, doesn't he? If you have to explain a business model in many, many ways, it's not really a very simple business model, is it, or a successful business model. And then a book which has inspired you. So even though I'm mostly um, known for writing about investment-related stuff, I'm actually really quite passionate about managing organizations, mm -hmm. managing companies, or once I managed a non-profit. And I think the single most useful book I've ever read about managing organizations or building your company is called The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, one of the founders of um, Andreessen Horowitz, the yep. venture capital firm. Ben Horowitz um, managed Netscape in the 1990s. Yep. And he has written what I would describe as a book that is almost like having a mentor, like having someone explain to you how managing works. He writes about very practical subjects such as what if you have um, someone who's a smart employee, a very smart person but a bad employee? Mm -hmm. um, or how do you avoid having politics in your company yes, and things yeah. like that? And of all the management books I've read, this is the one that I occasionally still get out and I find very inspiring and useful, especially if you're younger. Uh, and maybe very useful if you're about to embark on, on buying half a country. That as well. Uh, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? So a piece of advice that I love passing on is a quote from Woody Allen, which is, turning up is 80% of success. Yep, that's for sure. And you can interpret that in different ways. So the way he meant it, I believe, is that just do something consistently. So if you're a writer, turn up at your laptop, your keyboard every day and write something, and then eventually good things will start to happen. I have slightly reinterpreted that for myself in the sense that to me this means turning up is being present and meeting people and going out there and facing the world. I'm a big believer that many things, if not the majority of the things that you're going to achieve in your life are going to depend on who you know. Yep. And the more people you know, the more people you can pick up the phone to and say, hey, I know we haven't spoken in 12 years, but you know, I'd love to have a chat with you. Um, the better for you. And the young generation nowadays has these incredible tools called LinkedIn, social media, mm -hmm. email, you name it, Zoom. It is easier than ever before to stay in touch with people or at least keep some record of their whereabouts. And I can only tell everyone that this is really one of the most important things to do in life. Um, build your network, keep in touch with people in a genuine way, not just for the yeah. sake of it. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually you'll find that it pays off in ways that you can't even imagine. Great advice. How can listeners, or what's the best way listeners can get in touch with you? I'm easy to find on Google. Send me an email. Um, there are multiple email addresses for me on the internet. I answer to every single email myself. Brilliant. 
This has been absolutely magic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Nick. Been great. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.